Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile software development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich, and we're joined again today by special guest co-host, Todd Resedek. Hey, Todd. Hello, friends. How are you? It's so glad. I'm so glad to have you. It's so glad. Like the show is glad to have you. The show is pleased. We, the royal we, are happy to be here with you, Justice. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming back on the show, Todd. It's a pleasure to have you, as always, for another podcast. Eric, how about you? How are you doing in these times? Doing well. I think the last anyone heard from me was when we were at Lone Star, and then I had to ditch at approximately four in the morning (laughs) to head home to have my new son. So, Yes. So how is, can we say his name? Little Ostrich. Yeah, Little Little Ostrich. Ostrich. How's Little Ostrich? He's doing well. He was born a few days before, I guess, whatever you consider a full-term baby. So he got to hang out at the hospital for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Luckily, before it was fully locked down, so we still got to see him whenever we wanted and all that. Mm -hmm. And then he escaped. He he broke out, pumped some iron, broke out before... (laughs) uh, (laughs) So you mentioned a lockdown for people listening in the distant future perhaps in a distant apocalyptic future, perhaps. What is this lockdown to which you're referring? Yeah, so we're recording on the 24th, which I believe most states, at least Justice and I, I'm not sure about Colorado, they probably are too, but something close to a shelter at home ordinance. So everyone gets to stay home and and listen to your favorite podcast. Todd, how are you in Colorado, right? How is the coronavirus mitigation strategy playing out over there yeah so we're in a somewhat rural part of colorado so we've always been sort of isolated just by nature and proximity so it hasn't been too much different other than my kids are all home from school so my wife is homeschooling now and so if you hear any loud yells my apologies in advance Mm. so Obviously, this is not a news show, and so we're not going to uh, dwell too much on like current events, although this is the context that we're recording from. We're recording from the context of a stay-at-home ordinance. Everybody's basically locked down. Everybody's working remotely in this industry, software. I'm pretty sure every software developer in the world is already remote anyway. But so we wanted to focus a little bit on like remote work and how to do remote work for the next X weeks that we will be forced to do this. I work remotely normally. So does Eric. So we've both got lots of suggestions for this. Todd, how long have you been working remotely? I started working remotely in 2007. So what's 13 years, I guess now. Wow. So I'm actually the least experienced remote worker here. Eric, when did you start working from Indianapolis? I started the end of 2015, so I'll almost be five years remote fully. Okay. Yeah, I'm somewhere, because I've been on and off remote now really since college, which was nine years ago, but I would say less than five years in total. So yeah, we've got a good amount of remote working experience here. I guess, Todd, since you're the most experienced remote worker among us, what are like the big tips that you have really like latched on to? in order to be successful working from home. Okay. So the first one I learned almost immediately. So I started working from home and I had a small apartment. So my desk was in my bedroom 
And so normally I would come home from work and then I would sit at my desk and just mess around on the computer. And my wife was there and, and that was sort of like free time to talk and socialize, whatever. And so as, as soon as I started working from home, I was there during the daylight hours, but to her just seemed like any other time. So she just kept talking to me and wanting to have conversations. And so I think I lasted all of about three weeks before I, I rented a desk at a friend of mine's office, which was, it was his home office, but he had some extra desks there. So I think that was the, the very first tip was find a separate space that identifies that this is actually work time. And so now with kids and everything, it's especially important that they know that the office is off limits and that means I'm working. Right. So this, I guess, probably was 13 years ago, right? So now you have a different house, I imagine, with a in-home office, that kind of thing. Yes. You've seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. I'm trying to give a general description. <laughs> yes. It's quite palatial. But yes, it's a, just a separate room in my palace, in the north wing of the palace that I'm at. Beautiful French doors and mahogany wood. 2,000 square feet just for the office. I've never measured it. It's probably around 2,000 or 3,000. Now, for those of you who can't see Todd's video, he is sitting in a finely adorned library with a ladder next to the shelf that looks like it's on rollers. So you could do like there's a whole a, There's a fireplace number. burning in the background too. There's a fireplace <laughs> burning in the background. He's got very plush looking leather armchairs. This is very like English, like nobility English country. Of, that's that's what I was going for. In English country manner. Yeah, that's many sort of leather leather like. bound books here. Leather bound. Uh, no caviar right now, Jeeves. Okay, thanks. Sorry, my butler. Yeah. So you got a real ideal remote work setup, and it's not quite as nice as Madonna's bathroom, but it's pretty palatial. I think was the right word. Okay. So yeah separate distinct area for work that's absolutely what i do i've got just a desk here that i work at and i do other types of work but when i'm at this desk this is the kind of work that i do at this desk and so that applies to me eric you're a new dad but you've been working from home for some time so i'm curious do you have any tips sort of along the same lines or yeah i mean i'm on uh day two of working as being a new dad so i don't know that i have some super good tips but at least currently like if I'm in this office, then I'm working. So let me work. <laughs> now you both are a little bit ahead of me in terms of your career. So you have rooms specifically for work. That's impressive. Like I just have a desk specifically for work. So I don't know. I'm just a little bit jealous. That's all. <laughs> as much for us as it is for the other people around us. So if you don't have a million people like I do at, at your house, then a desk is probably just as well. Yeah, I, I do not have anyone. I do have seven basset hounds next door, but they stay outside. So uh, what other tips do we have for folks that are working like remotely from home? The space is a big one anymore. When I first started switching to remote all that time ago, one of the tips that I saw that I took to heart was like, make sure you keep your morning schedule. So like take a shower, get dressed however you would go into the office. And then that way it, it kind of context switches you into now's work and so i'm gonna work instead of just play games or watch youtube or whatever mm -hmm. so did you put on pants this morning i did yeah todd yeah always <laughs> same thing same thing here i would also say another another danger that you run into yeah. is just being cognizant of how much you are working so finding like a normal time to start but also find a normal time to stop because without that 
that mental like trigger of leaving an office or saying goodbye to your coworkers, you can just keep working and working and working. So one nice thing, if you have other people in your house, they might want to eat dinner. <laughs> and so when dinner happens, that might be a good, like, and after this work is just done, that's cause that's kind of, my wife has been home for a while. And so like once five, 5 PM ish happens, that's kind of when I go upstairs to make dinner and whatnot. So that's, that's a good, like another context, switch at the end of like, I'm done with my day. This is good advice. I need to take it. What about, uh, as far as like eliminating distractions while you're working, because obviously when you're at home by yourself, you have no one walking around an office sort of like maybe peering over your shoulder. So how do you guys sort of self-regulate your potentially distractible minds while you're working from home? So for me, I am way more distracted in an office with peers. So when there's people around that are having adult technological nerdy conversations, I really, really always want to like get in the mix and get involved with that. When so rarely I'll I'll see, you know, my kids will walk in or I'll go get a beverage and I'll hear my kids talking about Minecraft or boogers or something like that. And those aren't conversations that I necessarily get like drawn into. So I find it like way easier to not be distracted when I'm not around other people with a lot of the same interests that I have. Hmm. Eric. Yeah. And I, I guess invest in a, in a nice pair of headphones so that you can just put on music. And I mean, it's kind of the same thing that you do in an office to maybe avoid talking to people. This, this is actually the same pair I had in the smart logic office when I still worked there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I'm also wearing my smart logic headphones right now. The office issued headphones. Cool. No, those are those are really good pieces of feedback. I will echo what I learned from talking to Jose Valim, actually, which was basically muting or turning off Slack entirely, <laughs> which I definitely do. Sometimes I will just turn off Slack and pretend not to exist for all intents and purposes uh, from the perspective of, of everybody I work with. And that's really helped me. I don't have an ending time yet, Todd. I'm a little bit jealous of that. I would like to somehow develop like an ending time. But some of my best like breakthroughs like happen when I've kind of like struggled past the point of no return and you're just like sitting there staring at it at like 930, like 10 o'clock, like one in the morning, maybe. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Wh- whatever works for you, man. Yeah, I mean, there's also like there's a a spot where you can like, I don't know if overwork is necessarily, but like, would you have still come to those if you had stopped working and just gone for a walk for an hour or whatever. And then like your subconscious is still working through it. So then it like clicks in your head and you go, Oh, there we go. So like, I don't know. No, I mean, you're right. And I should take more walks. I'm asking these questions mostly for my own benefit since you guys are veterans at this work from home life. And I'm sure that a lot of listeners are completely new to it since we're basically being forced to work from home as I mean, I would say a country, but it's actually like literally every single person on the entire planet right now. So (laughs) that's pretty amazing. Cool. Do we have anything else we want to talk about, about this sort of like handling remote work during the COVID-19 crisis? Talk about maybe how you guys are doing professional development while, you know, all the conferences and meetups and everything are canceled. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's a good segue. So you mentioned Jose and him giving you some advice about working from home. Yeah. And I got to say, one of the things that's most salient to me from Jose's interview was hearing his kids in the background. 
And I don't know if, if you know, feels the same for everybody else, but for me, it endeared me even more to Jose that like, he's a real person. Right. So like he see, yeah, he's a little bit up on a pedestal, but hearing that it's, it makes me realize, oh, okay, he's just like the rest of us. Like he's just working from a regular house and he's got people around him and he's got a whole bunch of other stuff going on in his world besides updating the Elixir community and going to conferences and stuff. Right. Right. Eric. Yeah. And I guess I personally was going to likely take a bit of a break from conferences, probably restarting in ElixirConf, but in late August or whenever that is. So hopefully that still happens. But that was mostly just because I've I've got a three-week-old at this point. So like being home to be with him as he grows up instead of disappearing all the time. So you two sort of name dropping the existence of your children, I feel like is earning you a lot of goodwill with our audience. And it's, I'm feeling left out. <laughs> totally. Well, if you want us to explain it to you. No, no, no. It's just, no, I'm joking. But it is like what you're saying with Jose. It's humanizing to know that the people that you're listening to like have lives, have families, are not like single bachelors living by themselves, just coding nonstop and endeavoring to make the most entertaining educational elixir content for your listening pleasure. So speaking of conferences, I was at Codebeam, which just like barely happened. So they said, you know, if this would have been scheduled next week, the hotel would have canceled it essentially. It just wouldn't have happened. So I feel like we squeaked in all of the of the US spring conferences like just in time. And you know, I know MPEX New York is like the one US conference between Codebeam and ElixirConf at the end of the summer. And so they're taking a hit. And, you know, bless Dr. Freeze for ElixirConf EU, because I know that had to be rescheduled. But other than that, like we generally have a there's a pretty good time. Like this was a lull in the conference schedules anyway. So right. it could have been worse. I'm trying to remember back to Lone Star and think a little bit about how much we knew about this at that point. Because I remember the uneasiness was beginning to begin. Yeah, I was slightly worried. We had been going to a like a Lamaze class beforehand, like a week's up to it. And like I talked with the nurse. I was like, should I be worried about like I'm about to travel? Like what is a Lamaze class? So Lamaze, you probably know it as the breathing exercises that you see in all the like media. But it's now a organization about teaching you how to have to birth a baby. So it's like, it's not just breathing, but it's like everything around it. So we were doing that to prepare for baby ostrich entering the world. And so we had like, I asked the nurse who's a, was a registered nurse or whatever, I don't know, whatever she, she was teaching the class. And so I was like, should I be worried? Like, should I wear a face mask or whatever? And she was like, I mean, I might be worried. It's like, okay, great. (laughs) Wow. Okay. This is kind of an aside, but because we took a lot of classes before our our first were born, and it gave me some comfort. Like I felt like I knew what to expect, but absolutely nothing that I learned was of any use to me. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, so I don't know how much I want to get into it, but pretty much everything we used also was not used just due to circumstances. But I still like... I don't regret taking them because I think it, it also eased, eased any worries. Like, okay, this is, this is doable. This seems okay. <laughs> right. Like doing yeah. something would be better yeah. than doing nothing. Yep. 
a right. sense of, of comfort that you're not yeah. flying completely blind. Yeah. To like understand the what the experience could be and like what is considered normal, like is is a nice I don't know. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Justice. I got us derailed onto No, no, it's, it's a really interesting conversation, actually. I think that you know, we were talking about this crisis, we're talking about the conferences. I imagine that the audience enjoys a little bit of a break from the, I don't know what you'd call it, just like the emergency cognition that everybody is uh, collectively participating in right now. So luckily we get to talk about some interesting things that we've done in the last year that happened before all this took place, which are, do you guys have a favorite guest or episode from this season? Since we're just wrapping up season three, we didn't even talk about like what kind of episode this is going to be. This is the season three wrap episode. And so <laughs> we're wrapping season three here today. And yeah, Todd, you've listened to most of season three. Did you have any episodes that really stand out as superlative? Yes, I listened to all of it. There was one episode I realized I hadn't listened to and I listened to it today. I took some notes. I would say my favorite guest and she's always my favorite guest, is Brooklyn. Yes. Brooklyn Zelenka. That's a great episode. Yeah, anytime you get to hear Brooklyn talk about anything, if you're somebody that's curious or really interested in learning or even just seeing d- different perspectives, I feel like it's it's never time wasted. She could be talking about recipes or skateboarding or life insurance programs or whatever, and I would probably Are these still all listen real to examples of conversations you've had with her? No, not okay. at all. But I feel like she's so interesting. Yeah. Like the the plane in which she operates is like tangential to the plane in which I operate, but also like doesn't overlap very much at all. Yeah. It's almost like she takes everything that I talked to her about. She seems like she's attained like a level of mastery or expertise in to the degree that I just sort of like hobby about in things. Does that make sense? Like we'll talk yeah. about functional programming and she seems like a master. And I'm like, yeah, I use functional programming like almost every day and (laughs) not like that level of authoritative when I talk about it. So she just is smart. She's super duper smart. I will say my favorite episode with her was season two's episode with Brooklyn. I learned I learned more in that episode than I think any other episode that we've done just because it was so deep into category theory and like monads and all that good stuff. Yeah, it's just an endless, endless supply of useful information. I feel like most of us nerds operate on like this two-dimensional plane and our interests are very similar. It's just a matter of like how how far up or down the y-axis you go. Right. And she is like she adds a third dimension, which I don't know if it's just like the way her brain is wired or just being a female in or her educational background or what it is, but she right. seems to like start at the same point and then end up going in like five directions that are all like totally the different direction that I would ever think to go in. So I, I probably the uh, Canadian West coast air. <laughs> That's true. I, for, I never thought about the Canadianism. So she's, <laughs> she's not working on the freedom scale. She's not encumbered by our freedom scale of, of measurements. Okay. Well, Lest I I start taking the freedom of this show off, like just into a whole nother level, which I would love to do. I would love to freedom voraciously at this moment, but I'm not going to. In America, we're allowed to use freedom as a verb. So before I get any hate mail, 
that's uh, Eric. What about you? What, did you have a favorite episode, favorite guest on the show this season? I really liked the surprise Toddcast we had. That was like we've kind of talked about it before, where we had our guests cancel on on the schedule, and then it just sort of like Todd was already here, and we just reached out to a bunch of people, and like I think the surprise format, like we didn't know what it was going to be going into it. Like maybe this just doesn't even air. I mean, I think we said that at the start of the the recording, but I think it worked out super well and kind of cool to try that again sometime. Mm, yeah, I agree completely. That episode, first of all, blew our expectations out of the water. It just, it was just a really terrific episode as far as its reception and how many people downloaded it, like in a short amount of time. Yeah, that was a great episode. It was a lot of fun too, just being able to kind of experiment with a different format. I will say though, if I had to pick from this season for me, I think my favorite episode that we've done so far was probably with Bruce and Maggie Tate. Just because having a couple on the show who are in this position of running a business together and a very early stage business together and talk about their experience doing that. It just was a completely different kind of perspective that we don't normally have on the show. And they're such lovely people. Everyone on the show is lovely, but they're especially lovely. I also really enjoyed interviewing Sasha Urich. He's very smart. He's even smarter, I think, than I expected. If we're talking about Bruce and Maggie, so I yeah, I took some different notes from you, but I knowing you a little bit, Justice, like the entrepreneurial side of of them, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that that's the the most salient part of their episode was focusing on the business side of things. Yeah. And it's funny because in my mind, I, I think about it as a business perspective, but I almost think of it more from like the family perspective, like this relationship unfolding in a business context. I get like, to me, that's the interesting part about it because relationships are so hard. Being friends with someone is so hard and then working in a business together is very difficult. So then the layering of those types of relationships together is really interesting. I was going to say also the episode we did at Lone Star, the lunch episode, having Prague Dave and his son roast each other on stage on microphone to kind of close out that episode. It was like, it felt historic the way the lunch episode last year at Lone Star felt when we had the creator of the language, the creator of the framework, the creator of the major testing li libraries, like all the biggest agencies that work in it, you know, like all of these sort of, not legendary people, but what do we call them? Luminaries, the luminaries in the field, all in one room. That was last year. This year we had just one luminary and his son roasting each other. There were a lot of luminaries, but I was like playing producer for that episode. So I was like out in the halls gathering guests up at the time. So I didn't get to hear it live. But as soon as it came out, I, I literally laughed out loud when they started roasting each other. You guest hosted for a, a moment. You, you, you took the mic so that I could go and eat during the lunch episode. Yeah, I was very busy. I was running around a lot. So, but that was fun. So I think we're hitting on something interesting maybe for to pick up on season four, which is that some of what makes these interviews interesting is not just talking about the technical side of somebody, but maybe talking a little bit more, getting a little bit more personal with them. Mm -hmm. so and if we're being very transparent, that even came up as feedback. When we were at Lone Star, someone was sitting at a table with me and they said, you know, if I was going to give you any feedback, I'd tell you to get more into sort of the personal details and biographical details of the people that you interview. Like they want to know. And 
I mean, we actually work kind of hard to stay on topic as far as technical subjects are concerned and usually diving deep into those technical subjects because I think that's what the audience primarily is looking for. But there is something about drawing a person's human side into the conversation. Yeah, like I said, I think with Jose, like the salient part of that was hearing his kids and like how that put him in a different like perspective or kind of set a different tone, I guess. And so I, I do like the technical side of things, but it's it is also interesting to get to meet these like kind of meet these people a little bit or get get to know what makes them tick. So we've talked a little bit about our favorite episodes, favorite guests, some of the things that we loved. I think since we're this might be a good time to segue, Eric, into some of the sort of objective things that we've learned. Because not only is this the end of season three, this is the end of our first year in podcasting about probably our first 13 months. That's right, Eric. Yeah, I think we our first episode came out February 25th ish. So we're about a I think when this will come out, it'll be a little over 13 months. Right. And we wanted to talk. I wanted personally to talk a little bit about how the show has done as far as like downloads and what we sort of expected to happen and wanted to happen and what the actual outcomes were and just talk a little bit about the show itself so that people know what is going on behind the scenes if they're interested in that. So I think that the first thing is like, Eric, do you remember like what our expectations were when we started the show? Like how many downloads per episode we wanted to get what we you know thought our objective was? I don't remember the specific number, but we didn't really have any ideas like what what a podcast should hit to be successful or whatever because we I mean we'd never done it before. So I think searching around the we found some numbers where it's like if you get 140 downloads in the first 30 days, you're considered like in the top half of all podcasts everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I we were pretty successful at hitting that in season 1, so Woo us. I don't know. <laughs> Good. Well, I, yeah, we were. I remember like an aspirational number in season yeah. one was that we wanted to do like 250 downloads per episode. And we are, by the time this comes out, I think we will have done 47 podcast episodes and we will have accrued 40,000 downloads. So that's basically where we are at. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And we really wanted to be super clear about this. Like this isn't a brag because we don't really have anything to compare it against. Like this could be actually really low. And I wanted to talk about it because like the one year point only passes once the season three close only passes once. And so this is going to be the only time where we get to examine that moment in real time. Right. So Yeah, I mean, 40,000 downloads is sort of what we've done in total. I think on average, we're doing about 750 to 800 downloads per episode after the first like 30 days. March is on track to be our best month ever, probably in the 6,700 downloads range. And every month for the last four months, the last four months in a row have been better than the month prior and the best month that we've had ever. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about the way things are going. And we intend to continue with a season four of smart software now elixir resorts <laughs> so do you want to give us a sneak preview of what the theme of season four is or should we all wait eric do you have a, a feeling about that yeah so we're still trying to pick what season four might be we're tossing around a few ideas the one i think justice and i have been rooting for is like application architecture i think that could be pretty interesting there's a few others that i don't know 
how far they are in, in the, the stage of discussion. But uh, next week, we're going to talk about that. So hopefully shortly after this one, this episode airs, maybe we'll have something to announce about season four. But as always, like send your ideas towards us. We love hearing what you all think. And like, we can definitely try to do more personal stuff since I've, I think a few people have, have asked about that. So do you have a, an initial reaction to that application architecture theme for season four, Todd? It's a big well to draw from. So my wheels were grinding, kind of think of who would be great to talk to about this sort of stuff. There are lots of people who are opinionated about architecture and in this space, like domain driven architecture, there de- there's definitely a whole season worth of material in that subject. And I'm very passionate about it. I know Eric is very passionate about it. I think Eric, no one's talked about this in public yet, but Eric, I think was one of the very first people, Eric, when you made that decision that all of our Phoenix applications at smart logic, were going to, instead of having like a, you know, like an application and an application web folder, we would just have an application and a web folder. I know that's not like a huge architectural decision, but it kind of is. And it's way smarter in my opinion than having like application and application underscore web, you should just call it the web folder. And we even tried, like I even complained, no, I didn't complain. I've raised an issue (laughs) in the Phoenix repository. I was like, this should be the default because that's way better. And they said no, but (laughs) I think that Eric is right on. And if everybody else jumps on this bandwagon, you have made a significant dent in the Phoenix universe as far as architecture is concerned. So if you are an old time Phoenixer, uh, whatever we want to call that, there was a a lib folder and then a web folder in your project structure. So all what this means is that instead of lib your application, lib application web, this is just lib application, lib web. So I instead of having a super long name that has web at the end, and this is entirely for laziness as developers like to optimize for. So my autocomplete in Vim I can type lib, like else tab fills out lib and then like W fills out web versus like having to do like whatever my application name is, tab, 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 because there's the folder, the file.ex and then the web one. So it's entirely driven by laziness of, of wanting to make it super easy to get to files and whatnot. And then that also, anytime you type it out, you just have to type web instead of your application capital W web. That's the main driving force. And like, hopefully there's no just web library that you're pulling in. So (laughs) there shouldn't be any collisions. There is a counter argument to this, which Todd, maybe you might have thought about it already. Like, I guess the counter argument would be if you wanted to have like multiple sort of web APIs in the same larger Phoenix project, and then you might want to break them up by like application one underscore web application two underscore web. I don't actually think that is like a legitimate counter argument. Maybe I'm not looking at it the right way. Maybe there is sort of a, a smarter reason. No, I think, yeah, I think that the nice thing about Phoenix is that it's not really prescriptive in that way. You can organize files however you want. Right. And in my experience, everybody organizes them a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So I don't see why you can't just rename a folder or rename modules. But should it be the default? That's like saying everybody should feel the same way about it that you do. Like That's true. But I do think that sometimes there's an objective. Like, I think that Eric was a genius to figure this out because I think it's objectively better, right? Like, I think, I think it's objectively better to start your application with a lib underscore, like lib lower directory app and web instead of 
app and app web to me it's like a no-brainer but yeah i, I mean to I me it, wrong the so. whole idea of separating lib and web i don't see a very well-defined line there either like why are there two folders there could just be one folder or there could be eight oh. folders i thought the initial idea was to keep all the phoenixy stuff in one directory which was supposed to be the web directory in my mind, 99% of applications are only going to need to have one sort of Phoenix-oriented directory, and then the rest of it is just domain-driven design, you know, domain logic, right? Yeah. I'm not, like, super passionate about this, I'll be honest. So I think Dave Thomas gave a talk at MPEX 2017. Yeah. I think that was the right one, where he basically said, forget about all these files, just make it a flat structure or, or he said something that was very like outrageous. Yeah. That, that sounds very Erlang esque as well, where you just make, there's a source folder that has all of your modules namespace with your application underscore, whatever dot Earl. That makes sense. I mean, to me that makes sense. And I mean, at the end of the day, the way the VM looks at it, they're all in a flat structure, right? So it's however you decide to name the modules, like the dots in there, acting as your quasi namespace is sort of represents your organizational structure. Right. On the other hand, a new person coming in is going to be like WTF trying to figure out what's going on. So right. there might be some benefit to following the uh, convention that rails sort of gave us. I will say I've had one application recently where I wanted to keep the app web name. And that was entirely because the application was, Orphy. So this is my new website, wor.fi. So that's a Phoenix application. And so I wanted to have Warfy web. Like, how can I pass that up? I got to keep that. Right. So that was an aesthetic judgment. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Somebody yeah. I was talking at Codebeam was talking about, oh, I think it was Maxim Fedorov was talking about like internally how they name apps at WhatsApp. And essentially they're all have to be like app name dot something else. And so they like find cute ways to turn those into what is one English word. And some of them turned out horribly. So I think it was the, the domain. <laughs> we should do is, a season on application architecture. <laughs> sorry. So here's an example. The applications start with FB. So it's FB dot and then your application name. And so like one of them is called I. So like, there's FB dot I. That's the FBI app. <laughs> So, this is like a real like application that's in production somewhere? Yes. This is from Maxim and Michal. Apparently, we're giving me this whole list of like internal names that they use at WhatsApp. Okay. So I, I can tell hand. you that this happened to me today. So one of the other developers on our team is working on a project that I used to work on. And they come to me and they ask, like, hey, can you like help me understand some of this code? And I go in there. I didn't write this. I won't divulge who wrote this, but it's like variable T equals table, variable R equals row, variable C equals like value. Like it's just all like one letter or two letter variables in like a 10 or 20 line block of JavaScript. And I was just like, this is straight out of like Croatia, Eastern Europe, like Russia. Like is that how like I imagine like the like very hardcore like 1980s hackers programmed their stuff so that nobody would understand what it was doing. Or like after you send the JavaScript through a minifier. That's just what you're reminding me of right now, talking about these one-letter module names that would absolutely drive me bonkers. This is why we should do a whole a whole season on application architecture, because there are a lot of strong opinions. 
there are a lot of like hot takes and sort of things things that i would say like yeah that's obviously true we should just do things this way and then other people are gonna be like you're an idiot (laughs) yes so yeah that's the sneak preview that you're asking for about season four lord willing that's sort of kind of the kind of conversation we'll be having about application architecture season three we had a lot of special episodes we had the toddcast we had the lunch episode those were both already mentioned we haven't mentioned yet that we did do a bonus crossover episode with the folks from elixir outlaws did you listen to that todd i did do you have a reaction to it it was good. I would say, in fairness, a lot of the people weren't there. So Eric was not there due to baby. And then uh, Keith Lee also wasn't there for o- other reasons. And so it, it turned into like, the dynamic was very different. Than the usual Elixir Outlaws dynamic or the usual Elixir Wizards dynamic? I think both, really. So normally on Outlaws, this is my opinion as a fan, and I don't think I'm friend of show yet, it's usually like... Amos is sort of moderating and Keith Lee is sort of talking a lot and Anna gets in for color, like color mm-hmm. commentary. <laughs> the dynamic shifted. I felt like Anna was really moderating uh-huh. that episode. Yeah. So you were playing the Keith Lee role, I guess. Was I really? That is such a compliment. If if you compare me to Chris Keith Lee, my ego will expand. Uh, it is my embedded growth obligation will expand. Well, it was definitely a different different dynamic. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. I will admit that I think Chris is just a terrific person to be on a podcast and like any podcast episode involving Elixir that I listen to, I would say 80% of them would benefit if Chris Keasley was there. <laughs> so I can kind of understand where you're coming from lamenting the lack of Keithley. Okay. Eric, you also probably listened to that since you were having a baby at the time that we were recording it. I'm curious, what was your take after you listened to it? Yeah, I, I missed out on the chance to be a Elixir Outlaws friend of the show, but hopefully some other time. But yeah, I, I did enjoy the episode. I think Anna being the moderator seems about right. And then I missed out on Amos mentioned that he started programming because he wanted to make a mud. I didn't get to go on about that with him. Mm, I didn't even get to like plug your mud stuff, I don't think. I think you did. Oh, I think did I? you, yeah, I think so. I always forget the things we talk about. I should yeah, say, but... like, I think Anna did a great job. It was just very, very different from either show. It was like <laughs> its third show, and it would be hard to, like, if you were looking at it from an objective lens, it would be hard to, like, say this is more like an Outlaw show or this is more like a Elixir Wizard show. It was like its own very separate thing. Should we do it again? Yeah, I mean, this time I think you got to get Keith Lee and Eric there, though. Yeah. I agree. Go bonkers. One of our sort of points on this outline that we use for our show notes is that are like things that surprised us from the season, surprised or delighted us. And one of the things that surprised and delighted me about this season was the sort of latent disagreement between Brooklyn saying on one hand, like static typing is good. And Chris Keithley saying on the other hand, static typing is not necessary. (laughs) And so this kind of sparked an ongoing debate that I think is, it's very core to the community and something that we're all concerned about. Yet we don't really have a consensus on what to do with it. Maybe one of you guys could give a better overview of what the disagreement really kind of comes down to and what the different sides are. Well, I can give part of it, I think. 
maybe to set a little background as well, our context. So we talked to Eric Meadows Johnson this season, and he talked a little bit about what he's doing at Brex, which is sort of like adding a, a static typing or a strongly typed system into Elixir. And also I know that WhatsApp is currently like looking into this as a project as well. So there's definitely a number of people that are that think this is a good thing for our uh, ecosystem. Static typing. Static typing, or at least having more strong types. Yeah, like optional static typing, really, which is what Dialyzer already does, correct? Yeah, I think so in a, in a little bit of a different way. So, and I'm also not surprised that Brooklyn has that take being that she's like really got a math background. Totally makes sense. If you're into math, like you want things to be very, very like well-defined and not coercible because that doesn't really fit with the ethos of mathematics. So, and then I would say that in general, like Keith Lee's episode, you know, he's very, I guess, pragmatic. So a lot of people want to like, say, oh, Bleach Report must be doing it this way, that way, like doing all these, like doing everything the like the quote unquote best way. And, you know, he talked about how, yeah, we don't really use Dialyzer because I don't see, like, I haven't seen any reason why it would help us. And like we use Redis for these things or we use Etz for this thing instead of doing XYZ. And so he was like, you would think that they do this very complicated set of programming, but I think he's very pragmatic in a sense of saying like, I don't see like so far not being very strict has not really hurt us at all. So I don't see why adding strict typing really benefits me in any way. That's my take on it. Yeah. And I guess I will leap to Chris's defense by referencing the same argument that I've probably referenced at least a couple times this season, which is the hackers and painters argument that Paul Graham makes in favor of, of dynamic typing. And it's just this idea that the developer should be more like a painter than like an architect. And the idea being there that you should be able to sort of like mold things as you go and slap paint up on the wall, see what sticks and just be very playful and iterative without with as few constraints and pre-definitions as possible, which static typing seems to be so or strong typing seems to be. So yeah, that's, I think my interpretation of Chris's position, which is the ability to be unconstrained that Paul Graham agrees with. And I kind of agree with, although I will readily admit that Brooklyn is much smarter than me and probably, <laughs> probably right <laughs> about what, everything she says. So finally, we want to also reference our one other special episode because we talked about the podcast. We talked about the lunch episode. We talked about the bonus episode we did with the outlaws. We do just want to plug Sophie and Merrill's takeover of Elixir Wizards, which has not released as of the time of this recording is coming out the day after next, but will be out by the time you hear this. And I have heard from people who have heard that it's awesome. And I can't wait to listening to listen to it when it is published in a couple of days. So very exciting stuff. Eric, do you have any comment on that since you helped organize it? Yeah. So my biggest contribution was I, I helped push for their own wizards cartoons. So eventually we got to get one for Todd because he's been a guest host so many times at this point. Todd, you are definitely an honorary wizard. Yeah, thank you. I feel honored to be a wizard. I'm curious, who came up with the idea of Sophie and Meryl taking over? How did that happen? I'm exactly sure. <laughs> so we, yeah, we did a, an episode 
episode 10 was both with them on training, building and delivering Elixir projects under constraints was the title. So I think in the chat afterwards or beforehand, we had just kind of been tossing around the idea of a takeover. And then we talked, we did that episode with them and the, in the talk afterwards, it was like, these two would be perfect. Like, do you want to do it? And they said, yes. So <laughs> they play off each other really well, have very complimentary personalities and way of putting things. So it, it was very clear in the interview with them that they would do a good job. And because this season, we wanted to do a fair amount on training and recruiting, and they have both worked at Flatiron and had, I would call it like a pedagogical approach to explaining things. Like Sophie is very good at explaining things. Meryl's very good at explaining things. So it just sort of made sense. It dovetailed very well with the overall season arc. They play very nicely together. They were able to get guests on the show and who also have expertise in training and teaching elixir so yeah it just it all came together really nicely i thought awesome yeah i'm looking forward to hearing it i don't know meryl as well as i know sophie i guess but sophie's a really good ambassador to the community she's a like really easy to get along with person and she does a really good job of writing blog posts to help explain different facets of our ecosystem for me it's been live view recently that I've been looking at a lot of her work on. Yeah. I recently met Meryl in real life for the first time in recently. This wasn't that recently. Okay. This is before the coronavirus thing happened. We were in New York for an event that we, that she was speaking at and I was emceeing and I met Meryl there and she is absolutely as lovely in person as she is on a podcast interview. So yeah, really, really nice person. Very, very good at explaining things in a way that is understandable to me anyway. And I'm really looking forward to their episode coming out this Thursday, which is already out if you're hearing this now. Do we have anything else we want to cover here? I mean, we definitely talked about hiring and training. We want to plug any of the episodes that were really good for performance or functional programming. So I took a couple of notes. So I think... The ones that we haven't mentioned yet is Sean Lewis from Divi. I guess I re-listened to his episode again. And I would just like to say Sean is just a super, super nice guy. Very modest. Yeah. He's leading like a really big group over there. Yeah. And he has done it with like a lot of humility. And just knowing him in person, he's just a really, really good ambassador for the community. So I hope to see him around more this year. Yes. The other... I think really salient point for me was from Bruce and Maggie's episode. Bruce said, you know, Groxio, part of Groxio's mission is to help engineers manage their own career. Mm. And like that, I think is a very, very important lesson, especially if you're just starting out. So think about the decisions you're making, the teams that you're working on, the time that you spend studying outside of work. And just think of how all, all of that impacts this long arc of your hopefully long arc of your engineering career. Yeah, I would double down on Graxio for sure. I do have their programmer passport and I'm glad to have it. It's a very cool program. I'd also double down on Sean. He is dripping in charisma. That kid is cool. I love Sean so much. I love seeing him at conferences. I love hanging out with him. Yeah, Sean, if you're listening to this, you're a cool guy. Thanks for being cool. And Todd's totally right. You're a great ambassador for the community and for Divi for whom you work. That's awesome. Todd, anything else before we wrap this up? 
One other thing, one other plug I'd like to make for guest Devin Estes. He has a Kickstarter running right now. He's trying to get a little bit of funding and just gauge interest, I think, in general about a new library for testing, and it's called Muzak. We'll put a link in the show notes, but I would encourage everybody to check it out and consider becoming a, a sponsor of that. And one other thing I learned about recently when we were at Lone Star Elixir is I learned that SmartLogic is doing a pop-up conference. And to me, that seems like a really, really awesome idea. So if anybody is like just getting started or their team is just getting started in Elixir and you kind of don't know where to start or maybe even don't know if it's the best idea, this is a really easy way to get some experts out to you and have a great time and sort of learn and have somebody that you can ask questions of. So to me, that seemed like a really cool idea. And I don't know of anybody else that's been doing that. Thank you, Todd. We would love to bring an Elixir Wizards pop-up conference to anyone that's interested. That's a really good plug. Thank you. Eric? Yeah, I think that's about it. And this episode will actually come out before this is over. So make sure you go check out his Kickstarter will end April 11th. So make sure to go check that out. Well, thank you, Eric. This has been a terrific episode and a terrific season of Elixir Wizards. I am so honored to be a part of this project. I'm really glad to have such a cool podcast to work on with such great co-hosts and guest hosts and guests. And I'm really looking forward to season four, which you should not expect to have to wait very long for since everybody's stuck at home. I think we're going to work as hard as we can to get season four running as quickly as possible. You can expect more of the same high quality technical deep dives, talking to people from all over the Elixir community on all manner of subjects. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to my special guest host, Todd Resedek and my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I'm Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects building web applications in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project that we could help you out with. And don't forget to like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast players. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Epen on all platforms. You can find Eric at Eric Ostrich, Todd at Super Simple Without the Vowels on Twitter. Is that right? Any other places to connect with you, Todd? That's the best place. Super Simple Without the Vowels on Twitter for Todd Resedek. That's it for season three. Stay safe out there. Send us your topic ideas, and we'll be back soon with season four of Elixir Wizards. Mm-hmm.